Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for uh, your goodness and your provision for us. Lord, uh, there are times whenever you overwhelm us with your presence, and and I think that maybe this week has been one of those weeks for some of us. We just thank you that you have, have shown yourself to be an active participant in what we're doing here. We thank you for the many kids that were, were a part of VBS this week, and we pray as we've been praying that uh, that your spirit would convict and touch their hearts as only your spirit can. Lord, we pray that as we come to a conclusion in Genesis today, that you would that you would do the same to to each of our hearts and our minds. You would prick and draw us uh, to you in only ways that you can. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus, that he is our rescuer, our savior, our redeemer. Lord, it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So, a few things that that maybe you'll notice as we come to a conclusion here in Genesis. It's obvious, the first is obvious is that we're coming to a conclusion in Genesis. I've now said it a few times. Uh, we're going to cover the last little bit of, of chapter 49 and all of chapter 50 today, and well, that'll be the, that's the end of the book of Genesis. <laughs> and and I, I was saying to Wes this morning, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a bittersweet thing. We've been a church for six years, a little bit more than six years, which is pretty pretty awesome. And 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 to see what God has done in in how how VBS has grown, we've uh, this year we had between the three days, you know, with, with kids being here some days and not being here other days, there were actually 66 total kids that came this year, uh, which I think is like 25 more than we had last year, which is pretty incredible. Uh, I think there were 30 people who, who volunteered to help out, which I can't, I can't really express my thanks enough to all of you who helped out, to those of you who helped plan and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really kind of incredible what what God has been doing in the lives of the people who are part of this church. Um, frankly, it's a little bit overwhelming, actually. But um, So we've been at church for about six years. And for three of those years, we've been in Genesis. So we started Genesis chapter 1 in on August the 2nd, 2015. This is just, just shy of three years, which is un, which is really kind of crazy. Now, when we started Genesis 1 to 11, we weren't necessarily planning on going through the whole book of Genesis. And as you can tell, we didn't go through it every single week. We, we had a couple different series in there. We, we went back and forth between Genesis and Romans for the last three quarters of Genesis. We had, you know, Christmas and Easter and, and all that kind of stuff happening in between there. And so a lot of other things happened. But today is the 52nd message from Genesis. So that's one out of every three Sundays for the past three years we've been in Genesis. I, I said whenever we started Genesis that, that Genesis is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, it is, without, without question, at least for myself, the book that I have personally studied the most, not, not the least of which because for the past three years we've been studying through the book of Genesis. So there is a little bit of a bittersweet conclusion here uh, as we finish Genesis. Now, I'm not just telling you this just to tell you this. I think, I think this, this idea, this sentiment kind of 
is what we should feel at the conclusion of Genesis. I'm going to say Genesis about 80 more times before the end of this. I'm noticing that I'm saying it a lot. Genesis is extremely unique in that it's, its youngest story, by the time it's actually written down, is about 400 years old. So the story that happens in Genesis 50, it's 400 years until Moses writes it down. So it's a very, it has a very long history of, of oral tradition, a father telling his son and a, son, a father telling his son and so on and so on. It's about 10 generations to go about 400 years. And the stories of Abraham are another 200 years before that. And the stories of creation go significantly further along than that. So these are stories that are very, very old stories that are finally being written down. But then there's also this realization that, that Genesis is the beginning. Yes, every, everything about these last three chapters of Genesis are conclusion. Meaning they're, they're, they, they show the signs of a book coming to its end. We have, we have the account of, of two major figures in Jacob and Joseph both dying in, these last, in this last chapter and a half. And so those, those, that's a telltale sign of something coming to a close as somebody dies. But yet we, we can't actually come to the end of Genesis and say, okay, that's the end of it. Because we also believe that Moses wrote the other four of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and I think that the only way we can rightly understand Exodus through Deuteronomy, and actually how we can only rightly understand the whole of the Old Testament, and really the whole of the Bible, is in light of the themes that we find in the book of Genesis. And so what I think happens at the conclusion of Genesis is we have this end of the historic people. We have this concluding, these concluding remarks about who these people, Jacob and Joseph, were. But at the same time, we have a passing on of the themes that they held dearly to their hearts. We are all part of the story of Scripture. In theology, it's called, a, it's called the meta-narrative or the grand narrative of Scripture. Meaning the things that we are learning about or the things that we've learned about through Genesis over the past three years are things that don't affect us based on our knowledge of history, but rather affect us because they are part of our story. The promise given to Abraham to leave the place that you know, go to a place that you don't know. I will give it to you for an everlasting possession. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And through your descendants, the whole world will bless. That's not a promise that, that ended when Joseph dies. It's a promise that we now possess, that we now hold. We are part of that multitude of descendants clinging to the one descendant that blesses the whole world. So as we come to a conclusion in Genesis, it, it, it might be a conclusion, but at the same time, it's not a conclusion at all. It's simply the beginning of the real story, the story of our lives, the story of the life of, of the human 
All right, let's look at Genesis 49, verse 28. This is coming in directly after what we looked at last week in, in, the, in the blessing of Jacob's sons. Jacob has the 12 sons, and he, he blesses his sons. He kind of sets a few things out. We talked at length last week about that. But this is coming directly in the heels of this, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, all these being the 12 sons that he just blessed. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him, him being the son that he is particularly blessing. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, just as a clarification, that that phrase, breathed his last and was gathered to his people, means he died. It's just a, a Hebrew uh, figure of speech. He, he dies. So Jacob's last words were first to... Pass the blessing on. Right? Abraham, it, he receives this promise way 200 plus years previous. Abraham, he's, he's, he's in where his father had taken him, and, and God comes to him and he says, I want you to leave your father's house. I want, to leave you, I want you to leave your father's possession, your, your father's dominion, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. I'm going to give you this place. It's going to be an everlasting possession. It's going to belong to your descendants forever. And by the way, you're, you're going to have lots of children, lots of descendants, numerous to the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. And through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. This promise is given to Abraham. Abraham takes this promise and he carries it with him, this blessing. He carries it with him like we would carry around a cell phone or we would carry around our car keys. It's something that he had and possessed and he held it to himself and he lived in light of it. And then nearing the end of his life, he takes that promise and he passes it on to his son Isaac. Isaac receives this same promise from his father and a little bit later he receives confirmation of this promise being passed from him, from his father to himself through the words of God. At the end of Isaac's life, he goes to bless his eldest son Esau, and Jacob kind of swoops in, steals the blessing a little bit, but, but by all accounts, Isaac passes the blessing on to Jacob. Now Jacob, he's a little bit, he's a little bit more concerned about, oh, is this actually my possession? Maybe it's, maybe it's not. He's, he's, much more, he's much more unsure about it because, after all, he did steal it, so maybe these words don't really matter. And Again, God comes to Jacob, confirms this as he's journeying away from his father's house to go to a place to find a wife, to find eventually Leah and Rachel and have to, to have his 
12 sons, God confirms the promise to him. And now, or what we looked at last week in chapter 48 and 49, Jacob passes this blessing on to his 12 sons. This idea is really what what the book of Genesis is held together by, the passing on of this presence of God. This is why so often in the Old Testament the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is repeated. This is, this is what holds Genesis together, this blessing. Now he's passed it on to his sons in the final words of his life. He's passed it on to his sons, and with his absolute last breath, he says, here's what I want you to swear to me. By the way, this is the third time that Jacob has made somebody swear to him this exact thing. Chapter 48, he makes Joseph swear to him twice. Take me back home. I don't want to be buried here with the Egyptians because I am not an Egyptian. Jacob recognizes, and again, Jacob, as as he has lived his life in light of this promise, Jacob has held to this truth that I am to be in the land of Canaan. That is my identity is to be the receiver of the promise of descendants and land. I'm not an Egyptian. And I think there is some, some sort of emotional connection to why Jacob is like, I can't be buried here. And there's a lot of speculation on why does, why does Jacob feel this way. Maybe he doesn't want to be buried with the Egyptians because the Egyptians believe that you're going to, wherever you're buried, that's what you're going to live. The stuff that's buried with you is going to be the only possessions that you have. That's why the pyramids were, were made in the beginning. right? That's why King Tut was buried with all his gold because he, that was what he had in the afterlife. Maybe Jacob is fearing this. I don't, want to, I don't want to be in the afterlife with all these Egyptian kings. Maybe he wants to be back home with his family. I don't think that's it. I think, I think Jacob realizes that this is not where he belongs. He's living in light, or in fact, he's dying in light of this promise. Take me home. And Jacob puts his feet in his bed, and he dies. That's the mark of a conclusion in the Bible. Somebody dying. The story goes on, chapter 50, verse 1. I think this is, this is more shocking than anything, I, I think. At least this is how I felt. It says, then Jacob, and then Joseph, excuse me, fell on his, his father's face, and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Now, in, in Canaanite culture or in the Israelite culture, embalming was not the normal practice. You just put the person in the ground. You bury them. You maybe put some spices on them so they don't smell so bad, but they're going to they're gonna decay. That's the process. You get a cave, close it up. You can't smell it. We're good to go. After a little while, the decaying is done. Joseph, though, has he, he swears to his father twice, and actually probably three times, that he's going to take him home. And in the Egyptian culture, at this particular time, the, the concept of embalming or mummifying is starting to become a real thing. Now, it's not at its height for a little while yet, but it's, it's starting to become a prominent 
feature of wealthy people, of important people to be embalmed. But Joseph also needs to embalm his father because he's got to travel with him from the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan, which is not just a short one-day, you know, three-hour drive. This is a distance. This is going to take probably a month to complete with how many people go with him. But he has the physicians, the, the, the Egyptian physicians, embalm his father. Verse 3, 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. It takes 40 days to embalm somebody, apparently. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. You know, man, that's a long time to weep for somebody. It's a long time to mourn, right? And, and when we're talking about them mourning, we're not talking about, oh, they're sad for 70 days, and then after 70 days they're fine. No, they're talking about a, a process of vocally gathering together to, to wail loudly, right? This is, a, this is something that would have been a, a get-together for 70 days. They would have, they would have shut down businesses and shops for all this all this is a serious process and, and I thought man that's that's crazy 70 days I started looking into it and you know who else is wept for for 70 days ready for this Pharaoh this is not this is not the typical process normally if you're a nobody you die you're buried your family is sad for you for a little while but life goes on the whole culture doesn't come to an abrupt stop just because you've died. Egypt wouldn't, wouldn't exist if everybody stopped for 70 days every time somebody died. But for Jacob, he receives the same treatment as if he were Pharaoh. That's stunning to me. This guy is a, a foreigner who doesn't believe in the same gods. He's got a, a different set of deities altogether. He's not... He's not part of the Egyptian culture. This tells us just how important Joseph has become, that not only is Joseph going to receive special treatment whenever he dies, but his father receives the same treatment as Pharaoh would. Remember, Pharaoh at this point is the most powerful and influential person on earth. Shows us just how far Jacob has come from sleeping in the middle of nowhere with only a rock for a pillow. Verse 4, it goes on, and I think it confirms what I'm trying to say here. It says, And then, and when the days of weeping for, uh, for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed, I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall I shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Joseph, again, he's an extremely important person, but he doesn't, he doesn't really just have the right to just leave and abandon his duties. And so he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Is it all right if I leave for a little while to bury my father where he asked me to bury him? And Pharaoh, in verse 6, he answers. And Pharaoh answers, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And this is where it gets kind of crazy. Seventy days of mourning, just like Pharaoh would have been mourned. And it says, And so Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. All the servants of Pharaoh, 
the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Every single important person in the land of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth right now. Every single important person in the land of Egypt, except for Pharaoh, journeyed with Joseph to bury Jacob in a foreign land. This is a monstrous host of extremely important people traveling to witness the burial of Jacob. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company, obviously. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lament. And he, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. It's seven more days on top of the seventy. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus the sons did for him as he commanded them. For the sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess the burying place after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, we might ask ourselves, why is it so important that we know how important Jacob became? I think it's right here in the notice section. The Canaanites, who again are a pagan people, who dwell in the land of Canaan, which by God's decree is not their possession, but the Israelites' possession, they took note of this little band of of Egyptians who came to bury this Jacob. And I think this matters because... The name of the city is renamed because of this event. And I think, I think it's when the people return and the Canaanites who are in the land start to realize who they are, that these very old stories start to come back up. Oh, wait a minute. Who, who are these people who are trying to come in here and take this land? Oh, wait. They're the people who came up with the Egyptians 400 years ago. It's hard for us to think about history that's that old because American history is not that old. But most history is that old, right? Most of human history has happened 400 years previous than, what, than today, right? And so they're thinking back and they're going, oh man, who are these people? But I think there's another question that gets asked here, and, and, and I'm pointing these questions out, and I'm not going to actually give you an answer because I don't have an answer because I think we've got to continue to read. But, but the next question is, is why on earth are the, are the descendants of Israel still in the land of Egypt? Right? They come, down to, they come down to the land of Egypt to not die because of the great famine. 
But the famine is over. The famine is at least 10 years past at this point. Jacob, Jacob is in the land of Egypt for 17 years. The famine is seven years long. So if we assume that Jacob didn't come down before that, which we know that that's not what happened, right? It was probably at least two years into the famine. So it's probably even like more like 12 years. But anyway, it's been at least 10 years since this famine is over. Why are they still in the land of Egypt? It's a question for you to ponder. It's a question for maybe to drive you into the next four books of the Bible to see what God's about to do. But I think it's a question that actually gets posed for us in the text. Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, goes back. Why does he go back? Is it just because he's important? Is something else going to happen? By the way, my opinion is that something else is going to happen. Go ahead and read, read Exodus. Then the short story just abruptly shifts. It almost seems like we time travel and go back a little bit, but verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. By the way, the evil that they did to him happened at least 37 years previous. They're still feeling the regret and the, and, the, and the grief because of the things that they did 37 years later. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave his command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In case we miss it, as we've gone through the last about 13 chapters, which is the story of Joseph, chapter 37 and following, it can get, it can get really easy for us to read through the, these 13 chapters of the story of Joseph and go, I don't see God anywhere. There's very few references to God, number one. Really, the only few references to God are whenever, whenever Potiphar sees that the Lord is with Joseph, and whenever the jailer sees the Lord is with Joseph, and whenever Pharaoh sees that the Lord is with Joseph. That's about it. Otherwise, it's the actions of the twelve, of the 11 brothers or 10 brothers. It's the actions of Joseph. It's the actions of Potiphar. It's the actions of the jailer. It's the actions of Pharaoh. It's the actions of the baker and the cupbearer. And it's the actions of all these people on earth. And, and so maybe by the time we get to this point and we see this conclusion, we go, why, why do we care about this? Joseph reminds us that God's plans sometimes don't seem so obvious. Actually, I think most of the time, God's actions are not obvious. At least, not how we might think they are. Meaning, it's, it's very rare for God to just step in do something supernatural, and then leave. Most of the time, what happens is that God 
moves and works through the events and the, and the actions of people and the places that, that we encounter. And it's, it's through this mass of God's sovereign knowledge and plan that His plan works Joseph says here at the end, he's like, listen, everything that's taken place, we could, we could chalk it up to chance, we could chalk it up to, to happenstance and all these different, these different ways to, to explain away God's hand at work. But you know what? I, I'm not going to live like that. He turns to his brother and says, listen, I'm not... Yes, absolutely. The actions that you took when you sold me into slavery, it was your decision and your choice and you meant it for harm and for evil. But you are not bigger than God. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I don't want to point this out just because, because I think it's hard to, to, to swallow this, this truth. But it's not you meant it for evil, therefore God decided to change His plan. It's you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Meaning that before they made the decision, God already knew their decision, and God did it. Now, that's a big thing to, to think about, and, and we've talked at length about it as we've gone through Romans. We've talked at length about it as we've gone through Genesis. But God's plan isn't accidental. God's plan is God's plan. There's one more little passage here that we can't forget about. It's in verse 22 and following. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of, their, of the third generation. And the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of his out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made his sons, made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's a much more, much more obvious conclusion, right? Joseph being the main character of this last little section, he's finally, he's finally dead, and then the book stops, right? There's nothing written after that. It's obviously the conclusion of the book. I think a few things are, are very important to take note of, exactly like we took note of whenever, jo whenever Jacob dies. Joseph makes his brothers, or, or probably the descendants of his brothers, swear to take him home also. Now, Joseph doesn't go home right away, but... Jacob got to go home right away. Right after he died, Joseph is, is going to be a little while. But I think, that, I think the same promise resides in Joseph. This is not my home. Joseph, more than anybody else, has been enveloped into the Egyptian culture. It's probably the number one reason why all his brothers don't recognize him whenever they come to get food. That Joseph is an Egyptian by almost every account. Almost everything, he, he lives with the Egyptians, he acts like the Egyptians, he speaks Egyptian, almost certainly. But yet Joseph, just exactly like his father, Joseph is like, this isn't where I belong. 
so take me home. But, but Joseph adds something to this. To this. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't leave it by, by itself. It's not just Joseph's desire. He's like, listen, here's what I know. There's one thing that I know. I know that God is going to take you home. And when he does, take me with you. I am not an Egyptian. I am one of you. And I sat and I looked at this for a while. Genesis is so exciting. There's so many great stories in Genesis. So many wonderful things in Genesis. And then it's just death. I'm not going to kill you. And then death. But I think just exactly like last week, we see these two very obvious threads. Themes, if you will. We see two themes that started in Genesis chapter 1 and have weaved their way through the whole of the book of Genesis. We see the theme that, that God is the God of his people. That sounds like a very obvious statement, but what I mean by this is that God chooses Abraham, and from that point forward, God is with them. In Joseph's case, it's so obvious that people around him recognize it and and alter their lives because of it. God is with his people. But more than that, God's not just with his people and it's whatever. It's not like carrying your phone with you. Yeah, there's going to be some benefits here and there, but I know I hate my phone most of the time. It's not what God is like. God's presence means something. God's, God's presence, in a lot of ways, is represented for us by the blessing that's passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the twelve sons. After all, that's what a blessing actually is. It's the presence of God. God says, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you land. I'm going to grow your family descendants. I'm going to bless the world through you. God's not just the God who is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's with the people of Israel. He's with the descendants. Again, that might fall short. I think that, I I think personally, I think that falls short. Yes, it's nice to know that God is is with us. Makes me think of of Romans, right? I think think Paul is certainly thinking about this whenever whenever he says the, whenever he pens these words, that God is for us, who can be against us. I think there's something else there that there's something else there that defines this for for Paul, defines this for us, and I think it's the other theme in Genesis. That God's not just He's not just the God of His people, but He is the God of salvation. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve they sin, they fall short, they they're cast away, and what does God say? Hey, there's somebody who's going to come out. One of your descendants, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 6, chapter 5. I quote this the whole time we've been going through Genesis. Every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. And what does God do? He's grieved to his heart because of the the wickedness of his creation. He doesn't go, I'm going to destroy everything. No, he says, I'm going to save everything by sending the ark. Yes, destruction happens, but not total. 
And then you know what happens after that? Man, just like before, sins against God. And pretty soon they're building the Tower of Babel. They think they got it all figured out. And God says, okay, instead of destroying the earth, I'm going to send my son through a particular people, Abraham. And he calls Abraham. He gives him this blessing. It's passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to the 12 sons. And it's passed on. all the way down to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the theme of Scripture. God is for His people, but He's not just for His people. He's for His people for the purpose of salvation. I don't know what else we would want or need. Not as for his people for the purpose of salvation. So maybe the question remains, now what do we do with it? What do we do with Genesis? Do we put it away, never to be thought of again? No, I think rather we define our lives around it. Like I said, I don't think that we understand Exodus correctly if we think if we don't know about Genesis. I don't think we understand the whole of Scripture if we don't understand these two very important themes. That God doesn't leave and that God is the God of salvation. As we think about the stories of Saul and David and we think about the, the times when the people of Israel are so sinful and yet God remains with them, even in exile. The same, I think, is still true for us today. It seems like there's times when we're distant and far away from God. It seems like we're making every, every wrong move that we can possibly make. But yeah, yeah there, there's always the presence of God. Maybe for some of us that's not true. Maybe some of us don't actually hold on to that promise. But as I think Scripture commands us to share this good news, to share this truth. It also, I think, commands us to tell those who don't possess that promise, don't hold on to those threads, to grab a hold. If you don't know Jesus, let me say it plainly. If you don't know him as your Savior, as your God who never leaves, who is not just a God who gives you nice things, but is the God who gave you the blood of his Son, pick up those threads and hold them as your own. The conclusion of Jacob and Joseph's life, I think, makes room for you and I. pray. Father, I thank and praise you for the work of your son Jesus for my life. I pray that everybody in this room is saying that exact same thing. Lord, for those who do not know you as their God and their Savior, I pray that you would grab a hold of them and pull them to you.
that you would give them the strength to relinquish the control of their lives into your hands. That they would place their trust and their hope and their confidence in the work of your son Jesus on the cross. And in shedding his blood and giving his body, he paid the ransom that was rightfully ours to pay. The ransom that we couldn't pay on our own. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for his work. I praise you for his saving work. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.